Hello. It is good to see all of you. It is good to be with you. My name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we've lived in Mountain View, down about two miles down in Middlefield, for about 14 years. And uh, about a year ago or so, we wanted to do something uh, with our house. There, there's something we were trying to do. And we found out that we couldn't do it because there was an outstanding permit against our house. So it turns out that when we bought the house, we'd had some chimney work done. And apparently the, the work had been done, but it had never been inspected. And so there was this open permit that prevented us from doing whatever it was that we were supposed to do. Um, now, we didn't actually end up doing what we tried to do. And so we never fixed it. The work is done. The, the chimney's fine. I've sat by that fire and, and I'm, I'm still here, right? But what this means is that somewhere deep in the bowels of the city of Mountain View Planning Department, there exists a piece of paper that says that my chimney is not okay yet until it's been inspected. Now, to fix this, I would actually have to redraw the plans, hire somebody to come, figure out what needs to be done, then say it's already been done just to close out this permit. So it, it ended up being more trouble than it's worth. But the, the question I want us to think about is what's the importance of that piece of paper? It's the bureaucratic equivalent of this. See? You can't leave it unfinished. It's something that's open and not yet closed. But here's the question. Does it matter? Does that piece of paper that says something according to the city of Mountain View, does it actually make a difference or not? That's the kind of issue that we're going to be trying to think about this morning. See, we're in the middle of this series in the book of Ezra called Return and Rebuild. We've seen God's people coming back from exile. We've seen them coming into the city of Jerusalem. We've seen them start to rebuild the temple. And then last week, as Scott taught us from chapter 4, we saw that they got discouraged and they stopped. The work was paused. As we get into chapter 5 this week, we're going to hear a lot of the word house. Eleven times we're going to see the word house referring to the house of God, the house of the great God, the house of the Lord. But one time we're going to hear a really unique reference where it's the house of the treasures of the king. And it's translated in our Bible as the royal archives of Babylon. We're going to see this tension in our passage between the house of God that's being built and the house of man that has some kind of authority over what's happening in Jerusalem. See that royal archives, that's the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of the city of Mountain View planning department. And we're going to explore this tension that exists between the houses of God and man. Now, this is a really important issue for us to consider. 
because all of us live here in this earth. We live in a world where the house of man has some kind of authority. There are pieces of paper all throughout the world that matter to us. Diplomas, job offers, transcripts, grades, citizenship papers. There are documents that make a difference in our lives. And yet, over the last few weeks, we've been talking about rebuilding the house of God, rebuilding this spiritual community. It's so easy to get focused on those pieces of paper as if they're the most important things. In the midst of that, how do we constantly go back to and remind ourselves that it's this house, the house of God, that's important? That's the challenge for us. It's been a particular challenge during the season of COVID, right? We spent so much time as a church. I don't know how many meetings I've been in trying to decipher a piece of paper that the government has written to tell us what we can and can't do. Do we have to wear masks? How far apart do we have to stand? What do we have to check in people with? How do we do this? We're trying to figure out how to live under the authority of the house of man and yet still be the house of God. And it's been a challenge as a church to constantly remind ourselves that God is the one in control. That ultimately we live under his authority. So this morning, as we, as we see the Israelites, we're going to see them wrestling with this tension. And we're going to learn a few things from them. Because we're going to see how, first of all, they pay attention to the voice of God. We're going to see them be comforted by the eye of God. And we're going to see how they understand themselves as servants of God. All of this is going to contribute to how they view themselves as building the house of God. But they aren't just building a temple. You know, I love when God does this. This week, as I sat down to write this sermon, my Bible reading that morning was from Psalm 127, which begins, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And so all throughout this, we're going to see that even though it's these Israelites working hard, it's God at work. So let's look at their story and see what we have to learn. I love the way this passage starts out because in Ezra 5, it begins with a great sermon that everybody listens to and they do what the preacher asks. I know. It's very rare, not only in the Old Testament, but today. So, um, what we're going to see, Ezra 5, 1, listen to what happens. Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. That's the sermon. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. If you remember from last week, we saw that the work on the house of God was stopped. The people were discouraged by the people of the land around them. 
Ezra 5 picks up 15 years later, 15 years of discouragement, 15 years of not building the temple. And then Haggai and Zechariah prophesy to them. And what do they do? They listen and they change and they start building the temple again. That must have been a great sermon. Doesn't it make you wonder what did they say? Well, good news. We just so happen to have what they said. We have it in the book of Haggai. Listen to Haggai 1, verses 3 to 4 and verse 9. This is what Haggai said to them. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts. Sorry. We're going to jump down to verse 9. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? God is talking about the drought and the famine that's happened. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Think about these Jews thousands of years ago. They've come back from exile. They've been put back in the city of Jerusalem. They start work on the temple. And then what happens? Life gets complicated. The people around them discourage them. So they stop and they they say this. I think I just need to focus on my own house. I think I just need to get my stuff in order first. And then I'll figure out obeying God. That's the approach that they take. Because serving God can be complicated. It can be confusing. There's all sorts of questions about what to do and how to do it and knowing whether you're even making a difference. And so they just, they just draw back from that work and they focus on themselves. I just need to focus on myself for now. My priority right now is to get my life figured out. All I can manage is to keep life working. Once I get settled, then I can think about other things. Does that sound familiar to any of us? We, a lot of us are coming back. Life is resuming. Activities are coming back. There, there's all this new stuff. And, and with it, all the complications of life. And I've heard people say exactly those words. As the prophet Haggai said, we are tempted to busy ourselves with our own houses while the house of God lies in ruins. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to add one more thing to your plate. I'm not saying, hey, you're not working hard enough. You need to work harder. You need to chip in. You need to stress out more. This is one more thing you need to do. That's not at all what's going on here. Because what we're going to see is that when you rethink of what's important, when you, when you figure out what it looks like to pour yourself into the house of God, that life actually starts to fall into place. That things actually click in a different way. 
What I want for us is to be in a place where we can listen to God's voice in our lives and recognize the invitation that he has for us to step into his work. Listen to the voice of God. We had a staff meeting earlier this week where we went around and we shared different aspects of how we were doing, what we were excited about, what was hard going on, what we were hoping for. And over and over again, I heard people say, we need leaders. We need children's ministry leaders. We need youth leaders. We need worship leaders. We need people to help with production. We need people to help in these areas. There's all these opportunities here to to contribute what you have to be a part of this. And the question is not, can you meet a need? It's not as if there's this gaping hole and the ship is going to sink unless you plug it. That's not how it works in the house of God. In the house of God, the way it works is that God lays something on your heart. He gives you a calling for your sake so that you can be part of his work. It's not you saving the day. It's you coming alongside with what God is doing. And I just want to encourage you that if there's something that God is calling you towards, pay attention to that. Pay attention to the voice of the prophets like Haggai and Zechariah. Pay attention to a calling that God might be inviting you into something that's going to open up a new experience for you. What does it look like for you to listen to the voice of God. The people in Jerusalem did just that, and they began to build again. That's what we heard. So they started building, and the story picks up after that. And what we realize is that when they got to work, we see two different parties that were watching them work. Listen to verses 3 and 5, 3 to 5. At the same time, at the same time, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shathar Bozani and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus. Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them this. What are the names of the men who are building this building? But the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews. And they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. Nothing happens in this world that goes unnoticed. Nothing happens that goes unnoticed. Do you realize that? Sometimes we kind of have this perception that we operate in a bubble, either the bubble of our individual lives or the bubble of the church. But what we see here is the Jews start building and the world around them notices. Tatanai is the governor. He is a local bureaucratic chief. He notices this work and he says, hey, I need to make sure that this is allowed to happen. And so he comes up to the Jews and he asks what seems to be very uh, fair and honest questions. There doesn't seem to be any hostility here. He just has some responsibility and he's making sure things are okay. And we've had a lot of this kind of interaction as a church in the last several years. In fact, it, it's been interesting to see, to kind of break that bubble and realize how much a part of our community we are. 
So a few years ago, our kitchen got shut down because of a county health complaint. That led to an effort to rebuild and remodel the kitchen. And then when COVID happened, we actually received a special permit from the county because we were part of a charitable feeding program. And so we were allowed to remodel our kitchen while other construction was shut down. We've dealt with um, noise complaints of construction or various things going on as we've been worshiping outside and had to interact and figure out how to love our neighbors well in the midst of this time. We've hosted some city events, opening up our campus to city officials to say, how can we bless this city with this facility that we have? And of course, we've spent lots of time trying to figure out what it looks like to obey regulations regarding COVID and the pandemic. So all that we do here is noticed by the world around us. The tatanize of Palo Alto see what we're doing and they have questions. That's good for us to realize that we're not invisible, that people actually take notice. And maybe it makes us think a little more carefully about how we do things. But after we hear about Tat and I watching the Jews, we hear something else. We hear that the eye of God was on them. It's a really unique phrase. We don't have a lot of places in the Old Testament where we hear about the eye of God. Sometimes we hear about the eyes of God. Sometimes we hear that God notices. But the eye of God, isn't that just a vivid imagery? Try to avoid the Lord of the Rings reference and see the eye of Sauron. This is a different kind of eye. But God's eye was on them, watching what they were doing. And because of that, we read that God actually protected them from being shut down, from having to stop the work. And so what we realize is that while Tat and I was watching them, noticing what was going on, so was God. And his eye was, in fact, the more powerful one. Nothing that we do goes unnoticed, either by the people around us and certainly by God. That's meant to be a comfort to us. Maybe it's terrifying (laughs) to know that nothing you do goes unnoticed. But it can also be comforting to know that God sees you. God sees the work you do. God sees what motivates you and what you put in, even when others don't. And we can trust the eye of God. I've been wondering lately about cameras. For some reason, this question has been bouncing around in my head. How many cameras do you think there are in the world today? I mean, I've got two right here. There's one on the front of my iPad, and I think there's at least one, maybe two on the back. There's a camera there, there's a camera there, there's two cameras there. I have three on my phone, actually probably four because there's one on front. There's probably a couple hundred if you count all of our phones. Our cars in the back, they usually have backup cameras. There's security cameras, there's ATM cameras, there's traffic cameras, there's satellite cameras. I wonder, and I don't know why this has been going on in my head, how many cameras exist in the world today? I asked my family this question, and we were kind of speculating over dinner one night, and it's at least more than the number of people in the world. That was our conclusion. So 10 billion, 20 billion, I don't know. Think about all of those eyes all around the world. And if all of them were turned on at once, recording 
everything that happened from every angle possible. Think of all the data that that would collect. I don't know that we'd even have the means to store that much data. But then compare that to the eye of God that was on these Jews, that is on us, that sees everything that happens from every angle, in every place, at every time. That's what it means to be all-knowing, omniscient. That's big data. The knowledge that God has. And this is meant for us to comfort us, to know that God is there seeing those things. I've wondered, why is it that we've built so many cameras? What's driving us to do all this? And I, I think the simplistic answer is control. We think if we can see, then we can control the outcome. If we can just see from every angle, then we can figure out what to do about things. And yet the one eye of God sees it all and is in control of it all. That's something we can rest in. And as the passage continues, I think we're going to see how God's people figured out a way to rest in that knowledge, to trust the eye of their God. See, because God was watching out for them, their, their work wasn't stopped. And so Tatanai sends a letter to the uh, Persian bureaucratic system to figure out whether this construction project is properly permitted. And we read about that letter. And what I want to do is read just a couple chunks of it. It's, it's, it's pretty long. But I want us to notice the tone and the language with which these Jews speak to the powers that be. So we're going to start by reading uh, verses 8 through 9. This is the beginning of the letter. Be it known, this is Tatanai's voice, to the king that we went to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God. It is being built with huge stones and timber is laid in the walls. This work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked those elders and spoke to them thus, who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? So this is what Tatanai asks. He's writing a letter to report this to Darius, the king of Persia. And then he quotes the answer from the Jews. Here's part of what he quotes. This is verses 11 to 13. And this was their reply to us. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. And we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven... He gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that this house of God should be rebuilt. They go on with a little more detail, and then they they conclude with this humble request of Darius. Listen to verse 17. Therefore... If it seems good to the king, let search be made in the royal archives there in Babylon to see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus the king for the rebuilding of this house of God in Jerusalem. And let the king send us his pleasure in this matter. 
Here we have this one unique usage of the word house. It's translated in the ESV as royal archives. That phrase is actually house of the treasures of the king. And we have these Jews that are now writing to the royal archives of Babylon, asking about whether they can find a certain piece of paper that gives them authority to do what they're trying to do. And what I want us to explore is the power dynamic that we see in this, in this request. I want to look at three different characters, Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, and God. See, Nebuchadnezzar was a violent, unpredictable, brutal king. He destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, stole all the treasures. And yet when the Jews speak of Nebuchadnezzar, they say, God gave us into his hand. There's this leadership principle that if you lead a team of people and you also have management above you, if your team makes a mistake, a good leader takes responsibility and says, that's my fault. I'm their leader. If your team does something great, then a good leader says, they did that. That was there. So you give your team credit when they do good things and you take the blame when they make mistakes. So what we see the Jews doing is they kind of let Nebuchadnezzar off the hook. They don't blame him. They blame God. They say God gave us into his hand. But then when they talk about Cyrus, the second king, they say, Cyrus issued a decree allowing us to return. Now, we know because we read it earlier in Ezra that the Lord stirred the spirit of Cyrus to do this. But this was God's work. And yet when the Jews describe it, they don't attribute the good work to God. They give Cyrus credit for it. See, they're, they're softening their language. They're blaming God instead of Nebuchadnezzar, but they're giving credit to Cyrus. And the last point, I think, gives us a clue as to why they do this, as to how they're able to do this. Because this is how they refer to themselves. They say, we are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. See, they knew who they were. They were solid in their identity. They were not servants of Babylon. They might be under Babylon's authority, but they were servants of the God of heaven and earth. And because they knew who they were, because they knew what the ultimate authority was in their lives, they were able then to submit themselves, to actually be generous and kind towards these Babylonian kings because they recognized that their power wasn't ultimate. For us then, it may seem trite. It, it may seem simple. Maybe you've heard it a hundred times, but the simple idea is that our calling, our identity is to serve God. And we serve God because he is not just the God of heaven and earth who is all-powerful. He is the God who loves us, who gave his son for us. He is a master who cares for us and 
sacrifices for us. He is the ultimate good leader. And when we are secure in our identities as his servants, it totally changes the way we interact with the house of man. It's one of the things that kind of surprised me over the last several years as as the uh, regulations around COVID came out and all sorts of people had different reactions. But it seemed as if sometimes people thought that the government of the United States had the power to thwart God's work. It seemed sometimes in the language that I heard that people thought that if we can't do this, then God's going to be somehow stymied or the work of God's going to be interrupted or destroyed as if a regulation from the government of the United States could threaten the God of heaven and earth. Now, certainly we had to figure out how do we live with those regulations? How do we honor them? But what we kept trying to remind ourselves was that we are servants of the God of heaven and earth. And then nothing that any government on earth says can change that, can stop us from worshiping. Whether we have to do it with masks on or six feet apart or virtually or outside or inside or standing in circles that are six feet apart, none of that matters because God is the ultimate authority and we serve him no matter what. And once we learn that, and it's something we don't learn once, but we constantly have to be reminded, it frees us up to to see ourselves building the house of God and yet living in a place where the house of man matters as well. Let's think for one last time about that, that piece of paper deep in the archives of the city of Mountain View planning department that says, if you come to my house, you probably shouldn't sit near my chimney because it has not been properly inspected and closed out. Let's go back to that question. Does it matter? Does that piece of paper matter? And does this piece of paper that the Jews were looking for in the royal archives, in the house of the treasures of the king, does that piece of paper thousands of years ago, does it really matter? On one hand, yeah, right? I mean, we live in this world. But you get the sense, even from the Jews here, that they're looking for this paper, but if they don't find it, it's going to be okay. Because they're servants of God. And that's what really matters. So for us, we have this freedom to lean into our calling to rebuild the house of God. But one more reminder, because the last temptation for us is to get all excited about building the house of God and rally for it and and pump ourselves up. But what we need to remember is that we're not actually the builders. We're actually the house. We're not actually the ones doing the work. We're the ones being worked on and worked for. Let me close by reading John 14. This is something Jesus says to his followers, right? Right as he's about to leave them. 
It's John 14, two to three. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. See, it's Jesus that's building a house for us. It's Jesus that's building us as the house. He's the one doing the work. And we have the privilege of of participating in that, of joining with him and finding our meaning in the midst of that. I want to invite the band back up. And as they come back up, I want to encourage us that, that we can rest in our knowledge that we are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. We, in our very identity, know that it is the house of God that matters far more than the house of man. And because of that, we live freely. We live knowing that the eye of God sees it all, that God has it all under control, and that ultimately he's watching out for us. And he's building us. He's rebuilding us into the house of God. Let's pray. God, we're really grateful that you're the builder. It's encouraging to know that uh, you're the one at work. How incredible to think of your eye seeing everything, noticing everything. And caring for us, protecting us, comforting us, looking out for us. Help us remember that when it seems like that's not the case, when we wonder whether anybody notices, when we feel like you're not there, when the the house of man, those pieces of paper that we pay attention to, seem so much more important than you. God, comfort us, be with us, and guide us. In Jesus' name.